Greetings, Sapiens! Welcome to Chance by Chance, a resource for young creators as we learn to navigate the professional field. This is Chance Gilliam, and I recently had the honor of speaking with a living legend, Twin Cities theater icon, Wendy Lair. Born in Pennsylvania in 1942, Wendy grew up performing alongside her brother and sister in imaginative home productions. A trip to the ballet in New York at four years old deepened her fascination with the arts, and she kept it forever in sight. In 1960, Wendy enrolled in Drake University. During her second year there, the director of Theater on the Road came to Drake in search of actors and offered her a job, bringing Wendy to the Twin Cities. After a brief time at the University of Minnesota, she left to focus solely on her career. Involvement with Theater on the Road continued, and she began to work with The Moppet Players. Director John Donahue went on to form the Children's Theater Company, and Wendy made the transition herself. It led to 20 years of teaching, acting, choreographing, and directing with one of Minnesota's most prominent venues, though Wendy refers to it as a 20-year apprenticeship and it prepared her for the inception of St. Paul Conservatory for Performing Artists. She helped to create the curriculum and artistic direction for the charter school project and continued to work all across town. The school's theater is rightfully dedicated to her. Wendy has been awarded the 2008 Ordway Center Education Award for Vision, the 2008 Sally Irvine Award for Commitment, the 2010 Ivy Lifetime Achievement Award, and the 2013 McKnight Distinguished Artist Award. Her and I had the chance to discuss these stages of her life and more, as well as recommendations and advice for us, dear listener. Mentioned in this episode are Brian Gornson, Genevieve Bennett, and Savage Umbrella, of which Carl Atia Swanson plays a part. You can find my conversations with these leaders at chancebychance.com forward slash podcast. But for now, here's the show. I give you Wendy Lair. Wendy, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me over. It's a beautiful home that you have here. Thank you. And it really is home. You were telling me before we started that you've been in this area for several decades now. Oh, yes. I'm Mm -hmm. curious how you've seen the Twin Cities develop, not just relating to theater, but the community as a whole. How have you seen it change over the years? Well, it's so much bigger. (laughs) It's just amazing. And of course, it's constantly changing. I just went downtown yesterday and... You know, everything is all ripped up and places are gone. I I was in the Baker building and I had to ask a workman how to get out of the building. And it's just like, oh, my God. But I think size is a big player in Mm. that because, you know, we talk about what a great audience we have for the arts here. Well, it continues to grow because I think the city must be growing. I live in South Minneapolis, which... I love because it's kind of stays the same a little bit. (laughs) More or less. More or less. You know, it's like the old guard seem to live here and all the young Turks are up in Northeast. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I can see that. I can definitely see that. And then in terms of theater, how have you watched it develop? Well, it was amazing because there were so few theaters here. Mm-hmm. When I came here, I came here, I transferred from Drake University in 1963, and there was the St. Paul Theater, which was largely an amateur operation. I don't think there were any uh, equity contracts. There was, of course, theater in the round. There mm-hmm. was the old log. There were 
tours that would come in, including dramatic tours. There's so few of them now, you know, it's usually the big musicals. But it was the year the Guthrie came to town. And that really started to change the uh, nature of what was going on here because it was a center and a from that center and the children's theater was going on at the same time which you know had a, a certain artistic cachet and from there other theaters sprouted around like divine little mushrooms mm. <laughs> here and there yeah. and i think what's happening now too is since the market is so tight here let us say i hate to use the word market when we're talking about art but uh that a lot of young artists are creating their own work and it felt like that when there were the two sort of larger entities in town and now there are the two larger entities in town but some really stable other theaters but i just love the new little theaters that will pop up even for a couple of seasons and do some really interesting work. Yeah. I always talk about the Savage Umbrella. I saw such a great show of theirs that was in a, what had got to be an abandoned old movie theater, but it was so beautifully <laughs> done and it was so thoughtful and it was something that you wouldn't see in a theater that also had to pay a lot of attention to bottom line. There are so many others now. You can't even name them. There's so many. It seems and, like someone yeah. is always doing something amazing. And there's a lot of niche theater, too, mm. which um, I like niche theater. I mean, you know, we serve a kind of community, but I always would uh, hope that audiences would expand beyond what their niche would be serving so that they can have a more liberal view of the arts. You mentioned transferring from Drake University. And I heard in a, in a talk you gave at the University of Minnesota, it was a video that I found online, you said that Theater on the Road, is that the name of it? That theater was on the th first theater I worked for here. Yeah. And, and that was the reason I came here. They had come and found you at Drake, is that yes, right? Yes, they were looking for men, but they took me. <laughs> Which was, uh, well, it was in a way, fate yeah. and serendipity and all of those things, yeah. but it was what brought me here. They looked out. And that was um, not terribly long-lived as a theater, but they used to do light summer fair, then they would do church dramas in the winter, and it was kind of all over the place. But, you know, Bain Belke mm -hmm. worked for that company, as did so several other people who have had gone on to have really good careers in the theater in town. Was it difficult moving to the Twin Cities? I couldn't wait. Oh, really? I went from living in a dormitory to living in an apartment. <laughs> Enough said. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and you also enrolled at the University of Minnesota. I read that after a period of time you left to work professionally, but how did that enrollment process happen when you were already working for theater on the road? Well, that was not a very good choice on my part because hmm. it's very hard to go to school while you're touring the upper Midwest. Yeah, I can you know, imagine. You walk into class and go, oh, is it the final already? <laughs> what were we supposed to be reading? I was not a very good student and um, I was so interested in theater. That's really what completely captivated me and... Hmm. 
I was doing everything. And of course, my parents were paying for me to go to school. So that kind of bankrolled my early theater career. So they must have been very supportive of your interests. And how did that help shape your career, the support of your family? My parents were so cool. <laughs> there were four of us, one who died rather young because he was um, a Down syndrome child with a the health problems but my brother and sister and I we used to make plays all the time in the living room and we would charge of course to have people come and watch them Amazing. but um, my brother and sister both did theater in high school and when I saw them I thought that was the coolest thing ever because my brother was five years older and my sister is four years older my parents just were just delighted with their hmm. children and anything we wanted to do was just fine wow I know. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. So fortunate to uh, to have that in your corner. I know. I, yeah. I mean, and it was not like they were particularly supportive of theater. It was just, we hope you're doing what makes you happy. And, and of course, they were happy that I was not, that I, my independence, I, I really was independent and mm. sort of being able to take care of business, as it were. I'd like to focus on your time at the children's theater, because you have helped to shape this vibrant community we have, and it seems like that was the, you know, the site of, of a lot of the action. Can you tell me how your connection to the theater came about initially? Because that was in the, the early days of the, of the theater even forming, right? Yes. Yes. As a matter of fact, I did a show at the Moppet Players, which was the precursor okay. of the children's theater, and it was on the West Bank of the University of Minnesota. And I had a friend at the university who was going to... Well, he, first he took me to a play at the Moppet Players. And it was just a very moving experience. I mean, I don't quite know what it was that touched me so deeply, but it had something to do with... Um, well, there was artistry there, but it also had to do with a vision, you know, that mm. was fulfilled there. Yeah. So uh, this friend of mine was going to be directing a play and said, would you come and audition? It's one of the Oz plays. And I thought, oh, sure, I could play Dorothy. Well, I was cast <laughs> as Believe at the Hand, <clears throat> which led to a, later on in my career playing many avian <laughs> characters. Oh, yeah. Then I met... John Donahue, who was the founder of the Children's Theater, and did that show. And also, I knew Bain from Theater on the Road, and he took took John to see me in a show at the university that I was in. He invited me to join the company, and that was the second year. Wow! The first year, I was I went back to Princeton, New Jersey to get a job because I had to bankroll myself to come back. Hmm. And otherwise I would have been here on the first year, but I was here in the second year, yeah. which was 63. I also read somewhere advice that you would give to young theater makers. One thing you said is that your career is what you're doing right now. Yes. And don't be afraid to take whatever comes your way. In preparing for today, I, also, I, uh, I read that at the Children's Theater, you were doing all sorts of things, costuming, lights, not oh only acting. Oh, my Lord. I'll tell you. Well, there yeah. were a handful of yeah. us. And we were trying to, you know, create a lot of art. Yeah. <laughs> so we were trying to fill that ton bag with 
five little people working like mad. <laughs> but uh, you know, it's it's great to get an appreciation and to know how integral all those elements are. You know, you're not just an actor. You are part of a larger picture. So. A much larger picture sometimes. Yes. Yeah. Is there um, any other vi- advice along those lines that you would give to young people? Well, work hard. That's mm. one thing, is look for opportunity. If opportunity isn't there, start to create your own work. That's the way to learn it, is to be working. I think if you find a company that really appeals to your aesthetic or your your ideas about the world, that you can certainly volunteer and see what you can do. Sure. And um, make yourself indispensable. <laughs> Yeah, that seems like a a great way to set yourself apart, too. I mean, there's been such an enormous influx of young actors, not only in our community, but just across the country today. It's it's a career in high demand in many respects. And if you make yourself indispensable, filling multiple roles instead of just one, that leads to a greater likelihood of finding and, and keeping a job than just trying for one thing. Right. And of course, that doesn't succeeding. work in the upper echelon because, you know, then... For instance, you know, if you're up in the highest echelons of equity, contract, etc., you can't move the prop, the prop man must move the prop. <laughs> Rather than you have to build the prop yep. or you're not going to have a prop. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, there, there are a lot of layers to this ecology. And mm. I guess what I meant by saying your career is what you're doing now is yeah. to, to not constantly think that you have to be in that higher echelon to be having a career. Because that's not the name of the game anymore. You read what people put down in their bios, even at the bigger, uh, the higher levels, and no one is ashamed of putting down that they worked for theater on the road or something like that. I don't use that anymore because it's too, too <laughs> long, to. <laughs> long gone. No, it won't mean anything to anybody. When was it that you uh, fully stepped into your eventual role of teaching at the Children's Theater Company? We, well... The Children's Theatre Company always had the aesthetic of using young people in age-appropriate roles. Right. And it would behoove us as an organization to have well-trained young people so that, you know... This is opposed to having adult actors playing children. Yes. Which looks kind of silly. (laughs) Well, I suppose it depends. Sure. But um, so from the very beginning... There were classes, and there were classes that both were taught by the actors and taken by the actors. Because a lot of times, you know, when you're dealing with a repertoire for young people and families, you're you're not just you know sitting on a couch and pouring a cocktail and doing a mammoth play or something like that. You know, you're you're playing the color green and you're playing a 14th century warlord, and you know there are just all of these things. So. It started, for example, when we were doing The Emperor's Nightingale, a Hans Christian Andersen story, we were using some theater techniques that required us all to study a little karate. (laughs) (laughs) So we were all learning a little karate, and I don't mean, uh, I mean sort of like the kata rather than the fighting with somebody. So we all took that, and, and yet... The ballet mistress was teaching dance classes to all of us, and the actors were teaching acting to the young people. So it was kind of a, an interesting we're all learning. 
kind of atmosphere rather than we just were teaching. Of course, as the theater grew, and uh, both in size of numbers of people in an audience, but in, in its physical size, then there were class dedicated classrooms and there were several iterations of that teaching that went from the glory days of Title III money, which bust high school students to the children's theater in the afternoon to take classes. And the theater was bankrolled for that, you know. So mm. we were able to really have a lot of um, students. And when that dried up, as it were, the theater actually went into having a school. And the school was an accredited, because we probably had sixth through seniors, sixth grade through seniors. Oh, wow. Yeah. How large were those classes? Small. Yeah. I think, well, when I went into helping create SPCPA, mm -hmm. I was working with numbers and I went to look at one of the old yearbooks and I went, oh my God, there were only 20 kids in, this class, <laughs> in the senior class or whatever it was. Yeah. So it was not as huge as the public school venture, the charter venture at SBCPA. But um, it was difficult to maintain and it, you have to be careful about resources and the, the theater was the reason for the raison d'etre, you know. So, right, um, right. So that didn't continue to develop. Okay, how long did that stay open for? Oh. Approximately. Oh, maybe six years. Yeah. Maybe six years. And that must have prepared you nicely, as you, as you also mentioned, for your time at SPCPA. SPCPA. Well, a friend of mine who had been working at the Children's Theatre Company, we were sort of office suite mates. She was booking the national tours, and I was the Associate Artistic Director and Director of Education. She had gone to the Ordway to work, and the Ordway had been approached by the Kellys, who were interested in creating the school mm -hmm. as the partner because charter schools have to have partners. And uh, she said, well, you know, Wendy knows how to do that. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was approached and for about no oh, eight months or so, I developed a curriculum and I turned it in and they said, would you like to become the artistic director? And I said, I don't think I'm interested in working in a public school environment. But I changed my mind. <laughs> why, why was that? Why did you change your mind? Well, it looked like they needed a little help. Hmm. They just needed somebody to rally around, you know. Yeah. And because they had some great people. Brian was there from the very beginning. Yep. And I remember at the very beginning, you know, we were all waiting to see who had to teach his class because his first child was coming along. I, I think it was a good decision. Hmm. It is one of those things that the universe gives you that may be that you are a supporting player rather than the star. Hmm. <laughs> so it was not anything I was seeking out, but it was something that I'm very glad that I did for what it had as a ripple effect. Yeah, and it set me on my course, so thank you for that. <laughs> well, that's... If you, you know, if you hadn't have been a part of it, I wouldn't be here now. But well, maybe mean. you're the reason. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps. One of many reasons, I'm sure. Can you tell me about those early days, especially just given my involvement in the school? I'm really curious to uh, 
to take a trip to the beginning of it all. What was it like working with Brian and the other, you know, the other the members? Other teachers? Yeah. Well, the biggest thing, of course, was being able to help the communication between the academic and the artistic side. Hmm. Now, the one thing that I did that probably was the best thing, and it's only because it was the knowledge I had, was that I felt that practitioners in the fields of art should be the teachers rather than, you know, someone who took how to teach theater <laughs> and never do it, you know, except to teach what they learned in a class rather than experiencing it. Hmm. So that kind of set it apart from the other educational theater-centered uh, school offerings, you know. Yeah. Uh, it's also a thorn in the side because every three years you have to find somebody new because you can only teach for three years without being a licensed teacher as a community resource or something like that. In the early days, it was a, it, there were 150 students, hmm. and that was not so hard. That was that was a sort of good balance of number of students. But now it's like it's over 600. Yeah, and growing. Well, as I said to the one-time principal of the school, or whatever his title was, this isn't a sausage factory. <laughs> You know, you can't turn, it's not turning out a product. Hmm. It is truly educing, educating individuals. It has to be about individuals. It can't be about, ram this in here and then you'll be just like you're supposed to be. Get you on your way, yeah. Right, you know, because it's so much more difficult than that, but so much more rewarding and so much more artistic along those same lines what advice might you give to those perhaps interested in teaching well you can't walk into a room thinking that you've got all the answers hmm. you know because it's a colloquy it isn't a it isn't i'm saying this of course now the other side of the coin because all of this <laughs> is just so hilarious i just sometimes despair of young people because of their I want them to be more disciplined you know (laughs) (laughs) so there we have yin yang yin yang so but um, I think that all of us who teach were inspired by teachers all of us who teach who didn't decide they were going to go into teaching because it would be a way to have a a lifelong career mm-hmm. uh, or a lifelong paycheck or you know whatever yeah but the best teachers are those who have been so passionate about their subjects that you want to learn their subject and usually or at least I would say 35% of the kids who would come to SBCPA were kind of passionate about learning about the arts Others came for other reasons which I cannot denigrate because to come to a school where you feel safe, <laughs> shouldn't that be a right and a, you know, for every student? But, Definitely. But it's hard to balance the third of those kids who are meant to be there and the third who are coming for other reasons and the third who probably 
I don't know why they're there. Yeah, that that is something that I noticed in my time too. The people that wanted to make something of it definitely did, and it'll continue to serve them well for a long time. But you have to want it, and I think that's true of almost everything in life. If you're in a good situation, you can take what you need to, but you have to put forth the effort on your own as well. Yes, yes. You know, I mean, I'm teaching now. I, w- I won't say where I'm teaching or anything because I don't <laughs> want to cast a shadow on anything. But, you know, the other day, one of the students said, um, I'm sorry, I don't know my lines, shall we say. And I said, well, if you know your lines, you wouldn't have to be sorry. And he said, yeah. And I said, that's a good lesson. He said, what, to be sorry? I said, no, <laughs> to learn your Exactly, exactly. And, you know, it's just a matter of prioritizing. Hmm. You, you put off things that you really might want to do, but you have to learn that it isn't that hard. Just do it. Just do it. Right. <laughs> isn't that the Nike commercial or something? Just do it. Yeah, they got a hold of that <laughs> slogan quickly, and uh, it's, a, it's a great slogan, great phrase. That touches on something I've been struggling with in my life, which is that uh, with this podcast, for instance, or with the other things I'm pursuing, I want to be doing more than I am, but I'm finding it hard to really dig deep and make the most of my time. There's just so many distractions today. Do you, do you have any words for, for me or others who are wanting to make work or to do more and just finding it difficult to really take that next step? Being awake and aware, I think you're going to be able to make better decisions. You know, and not to be so much in your head about decision makings. I have a nickname with some friends, and it's called Idea Girl, because I always have a plan B and a plan C, just like in case. Superhero. Well, which is, it's okay to have a plan B and a plan C, but if you're really awake to what's going on, you can dig deeper rather than creating the thing in your head that you think you're supposed to be doing, which sometimes can be counterproductive. Can you give me an example? Well, it's the same thing about uh, not having your career while you're having your career. It's Mm -hmm. uh, that you've created your expectations And sometimes your expectations will negate what could be the positive thing for you. The two big things, of course, uh, to, to be considered are expectations and judgments because they are just illusions. (laughs) I expect this is going to happen to me. Well, maybe not. (laughs) And then, I'm so disappointed that it didn't happen to me. Well, why? You know, it's like Genevieve Bennett and her talking about John Gore saying, beware the itty-bitty shitty committee in your head. Yes, (laughs) I just love that. And, you know, because it is slightly off-color, young people remember it all the time. But it is beware of judgments. But those judgments come when your expectations are not in line with perhaps what the universe has to offer you. (laughs) Which brings us back to staying open to what you are presented. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's it's really interesting. (laughs) I have sometimes just 
really thought about something I wanted, I wanted, I wanted, I wanted, and then forgot about it. And then like four <laughs> years later, it happens, and I go, well, thanks, but it took you a while. Right, right, yeah. Oh, that itty-bitty shitty committee, I, re- I recall that from my graduation, which you spoke at. <laughs> that Dharmic transmission is from John Guar to Genevieve Bennett, and then me to you. So it goes. Uh, speaking of which, you've talked about your relationship and collaborations with Bain Belke. Mm-hmm. Are there other people you've been alongside through the years? Can, can you maybe touch on Bain, lessons you took away from working with him, and perhaps Gary, any other significant influences in your life, lessons that you've taken away from them? Well, Bain, of course, uh, and I have a long history. Yes. A long, long history. <laughs> and um, Bain is, I mean, talk about an artist as an individual. Hmm. He has a very individual viewpoint, but it's one that you can really learn from because he is master of certain kind of detail. He can be so brilliant and he can be so, you just have to practice sometimes when you're working with him because he can drive you nuts. <laughs> he can drive you nuts because he is, well, here's a story. Yes. Um, the Glass Menagerie. Bain uh, said, do you want to play Amanda? <laughs> and I said, I'm too old. And he said, well, you're not too old. He said, let's just read it. And so we read it, and sometimes he would read Amanda, and sometimes I would read Amanda. And I said to him, you should be playing it. And he said, yeah, but I can't. (laughs) And so I said, well, if you really want me to do this, I'll try to do it and have it be you through me. (laughs) You know, I will try to take everything you know and feel about Amanda and put aside my own ideas and do you well that didn't work out too well but one of the things about Bain is he likes to give people line readings but the line readings may change several times in a day <laughs> so it's like trying to uh, to memorize a score but hmm. the score is completely different from day to day wow. and so finally you just have to go I can't be thinking about this I've just got to be this person. <laughs> so I've got a lot of information. I have Tennessee Williams, God rest him, because he was just a brilliant writer. And so I just have to do it and put that out of my head and just be in the moment. And so later he said, oh, you were really good in that. I said, well, I don't know about that, but it certainly was a chance to practice. There you go, yeah. <laughs> and uh, how about... Gary, your your partnership with him. Oh, over the years. well, he is well, such a brilliant artist. Yeah, and he is just almost a flip side in that he really has a process. I envy him his process sometimes because <laughs> I know he he works deeply and he he's very open and he's a master collaborator because he always talks about collaboration and he said people don't know what collaboration really means. We haven't gotten to work together that much because we just aren't, you know, you're not going to find two of us on the title page of a play that says <laughs> one this and one that. But we have been able to do some things, and we've got to do some things that have been pretty cool. 
one of our, I think, best duo rules was playing <laughs> Herr Schultz and Fräulein Schneider in Cabaret, oh, yeah. which we did in Florida. <laughs> and um, it, was, it was just lovely. It was just a lovely time. And then recently we've gotten to play Matt and Louisa in The Fantastics. Oh. And we are not Matt and Louisa, as anybody thinks of Matt and Louisa, except Ben Krywas, who's the artistic director of Nautilus Music Theater, said, I just l- love the whole try to remember and the sense of community that the storytelling of the Fantastics, because it really is a, a beautiful vehicle, you know, that there's the narrator and then there's direct address and the... And it's a community sort of thing. So we got to do that together and really enjoyed it. Although I'm always scared of singing and he's just a god when he sings. <laughs> <laughs> then you balance each other out, oh. right? Shifting gears slightly, also in that speech you gave at the University of Minnesota, you talked about our image-obsessed society. And uh, Oh, well, that has to do with my age. I was born in 1942, and we had a radio, Mm -hmm. and we'd listen to the radio and imagine everything that was going on, and we read, and so we would imagine everything that was going on, and I think that is so nourishing as far as a creative artist, you know, being able to use your, your own images. But now, um, images have been so co-opted by the camera that it's difficult to have your own images. And especially (laughs) like um, if you see a movie and then read the book, you go, oh, dang. (laughs) Now I've got those images in my head. And um, I think it, it homogenizes people rather than making your specific images something that is about your individuality. Would an antidote to that be limiting (laughs) or or moderating your intake of film and, you know, visual media? You know, I do do love films. So here we go again. I'm I'm contradicting myself, but I love films. I love the images that people have in films. But I think balancing, you know, I, I... have had some time off now and um, so I've been reading a lot. I find that reading not only stimulates my imagination but it helps my own personal narrative. How so? In that as you go about your day having that sort of literary way of (laughs) capture is so brilliant. It makes me appreciate things more. Are you saying you know you spend so much time with a book and in a way, almost begin to internalize the the descriptors and the right. But the speech but my personal narrative, you know, it, it depends on which book you're reading. I was <laughs> I was reading a John Le Carre book, and I went, I got to put him aside for a while because I'm so paranoid now. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but there's something about being able to appreciate on many levels. You can appreciate something visually, you know, or you can have a little poem about this going on in your head or Mm. uh, you know there's just I think it just creates a kind of depth in the texture of your daily life that I mean how 
we, we all know about um, George O'Keefe saying the reason she painted those flowers because people don't really ever stop to look at a flower. It may be just a function of my age, but I just have to appreciate things because they're going to go away pretty soon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, take it take it all in, but you're never too young to really stop and appreciate the moment. No, no, that's very true, and I think sometimes young people get it in such a, a different way, you know. Each year of your maturity or of your wisdom or of your experience is just a plum. <laughs> this is a very broad question, but what is it like to age, especially being engaged in such creative fields? Is it as though your head is just filled with ideas or can you describe how layers have been added and added on? Oh, I often laugh sometimes when I say things like, oh yeah, I saw Ian McKellen play that role. That was 30 years ago. Because <laughs> time, you know, time is just, it's not a straight line. But uh, I'll tell you the part about aging that sucks. <laughs> is running up and down the stairs or, you know, (laughs) oh, Lord, I know, but Gary and I laugh at each other because, you know, here we find ourselves in something that we would probably have joked about, but it's it's like, well, you might as well joke about it now, even though you're the one. Comes back around to you in the end. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I always call it playing the grandmother card. (laughs) Sometimes it helps you get what you want. No, that was funny. Before we started recording, Gary's having a little <laughs> car trouble. You offered to, to call up and impersonated your very old lady voice. <laughs> I have a flat tire. <laughs> um, by way of transition, uh, being respectful of your time and coming up on the end, I'm going to pose some more rapid-fire style questions. You can take however long to answer. Are there any books that have shaped you throughout your life? Any books that you've felt the need to gift to other people? Well, lately, Mm -hmm. this hasn't been throughout my whole life, but um, Gary and I have both really enjoyed William Ball's A Sense of Direction. He is a director. He was at the um, ACT in San Francisco for many years. And it's just a readable fabulous little handbook hmm. that makes sense and that goes down easily. I, and you know, you read all those Stanislavski things <laughs> when you're 18 and you think, what the heck? <laughs> that, you know, it doesn't mean anything until you've had the experience to know what it means. And if you've had the experience, you've had the experience. Hmm. But um, that, and I think it's good to read the Tao Te Ching every once in a while. Yes, oh yeah. Because that just takes you off the linear path. Brian had the same recommendation, actually. Very first episode I did. Oh, well, that uh, that sweet man. In the early days at SPCPA, we all had to have these duties of standing on the corner and watching all the kids get on the bus. I suppose <laughs> they still do it. But, you know, here it would be like, you know, 40 below, and you had been told you had to do this because we had sort of an authoritarian guy at that <laughs> head. And... Brian would be out there reading the Dao Te Ching, and I'd just go, oh, you know. What a guy. He's a swell guy. At the start of the conversation, you had mentioned Savage Umbrella. Is there anyone else in the community that you've been impressed by in recent years? Coup d'etat is doing really nice work for uh, 
classic work, you know, on a very big budget, but they they really peel away. I I, I was recently in the crucible at the Guthrie, and then I saw the crucible at Savage Umbrella, which was done in a church. And I said to Gary, oh my God, the one we did was so stentorian. <sighs> but of course, it's a very big theater. Right, right. And they just were able to just get into a conversational mode that was really, it was revealing of the, of the play, and it was, it was great. Although I loved the Crucible at, at the Guthrie because it's such great language. You know, it's King James meets Arthur Miller. It's so brilliant. I shared a dressing room with Greta Oglesby and we would sit and listen to it over the monitor. I said, oh, here comes my favorite line. Oh, no, 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 that was my favorite line. (laughs) Because it's such a brilliant piece of text as well as idea, etc. That was actually uh, my final J term at school as well. Was the Crucible? Oh my the, God! Isn't that brilliant theater. text? Yeah, it was. Uh, ever, a march is like an everlasting funeral around your heart. Oh! It was a magical couple a couple of months of my life because I just got to live in it. Really extraordinary. What advice would you give your say twenty thirty year old self? Oh, uh, my twenty or thirty year old self, I would say work harder, work smarter, you Mm. know, it just, I was so discovering how it was I was going to (laughs) live. And uh, as a teacher, I try to remember my 20-year-old self, so I'm not putting too much pressure on other young people to know what I know, Mm. because what I know has come from years and years and years of experience. And I just love that at some point you say, do you know, I have probably seen... 26 productions of Hamlet. <laughs> we were talking about going to see King Lear, and I said, Oh my God, I just was remembering all of the Lears that I've seen because we, you know, we can afford maybe to see one of our two friends playing the title role. It's going to be hard. I think we'll have to flip a coin. <laughs> Throughout your many years as an actor and a teacher, can you recall a specific moment of being joyfully overwhelmed at? the change that you've brought about in this community and the way that you have helped it grow. For example, I know that you were given the Lifetime Achievement Award at the Ivies. Mm-hmm. Were there any moments like that where you got to uh, kind of stand back and appreciate all of the work that you've done in your life? Oh, you know, it's <laughs> I don't know quite what to say about that. As you were saying that and you were working on the little joy thing, I was just thinking about moments of joy I've had on stage when it's just been, this is going so well. But usually when you think the words, this is going so well, you forget your next line. (laughs) And then it's not going so well. But um, I remember in 2000, maybe it was 2000, the year of the big tsunami in Southeast Asia where hundreds and thousands of people were killed and it was sort of in this resort area and, and it was just horrendous and it was around Christmas time or right after Christmas and there was this palpable sense of uh, being aghast and grieving and right after that a couple nights after that we opened the Pirates of Penzance in Phoenix 
it's just such a good-hearted, hilarious, funny little trivial play. But the end is, take heart, fair days will shine. Take heart, fair days will shine. And this audience was so relieved to have been taken somewhere and given hope that I have never been on stage with that kind of a roar of approval at the end and mm. standing and cheering and people coming backstage afterwards and saying thank you so much for that and you realize that sometimes the theater can give us heart you know it can help us take heart it can push our nose down in it which is often needed but you know that was that was a wonderful feeling yeah. to have that take heart beautiful and finally do you have any asks for the audience anything you'd like to see brought about in the world maybe we could help you accomplish it there's nothing as palpable as spirit and i think we see that in our world today that there can be a whether it's mean-spirited or embracing or empathetic or compassionate or whatever spirit is a real thing and if you approach the work with right spirit, it's going to have an impact because people will feel that right spirit. Now, they may hate you for it, but at least it wasn't just twiddling your thumbs theater. Well, Wendy, thank you so much. Was for that like coming from on high? <laughs> Come and see us at the History Theater. It's a, just a rollicking play. It's so terrible. It's about murders, and yet... It's um, sort of a guilty pleasure. Do you have the opening dates of those yet? It's the month of July, pretty much. July? I'll, uh, I'll keep everyone posted. And okay. Until next time, thank you all for listening. <laughs> if you've enjoyed this podcast, you can support it by sharing it with your friends or on social media and by visiting chancebychance.com forward slash support.